Diplomats say Israel and Hamas are closing in on a deal to bring a ceasefire in Gaza. The basic idea is a pause in fighting for 45 days. The big unanswered question is what would happen after that. I'm Michelle Martin. That's Steve Inskeep, and this is Up First from NPR News. Democrats are blaming former President Trump for sinking a bipartisan plan to boost border security. It's the inability of Republican congressmen and senators to resist his bullying. Are Trump's presidential aspirations blocking Republicans from approving even their own priorities? Also, a Michigan jury found a mother guilty for her role in a mass shooting committed by her son. What does that mean for parents in similar cases? Stay with us. We've got the news you need to start your day. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. Capital One offers checking accounts with no fees or minimums and no overdraft fees. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Homes.com. When you're home shopping as a parent, you have lots of questions about local schools. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by a dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. What are the prospects for at least a temporary peace in Gaza? U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel trying to work out terms for Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza. That offers the the prospect of extended calm, hostages out, more assistance in. Uh, That would clearly be beneficial to everyone. uh, And I think that offers the best path forward. But uh, there's a lot of work to be done. To achieve it. The U.S. and Israel have been trading messages with Hamas. It is a slow negotiation with Qatar passing notes back and forth. Qatar says the latest response from Hamas is quote-unquote positive, and in Gaza, people in the streets are calling on Israel to accept it. They're chanting, the people want peace right now. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with Secretary Blinken. She's in Tel Aviv. Hey there, Michelle. Hi, Steve. Is a deal imminent? Uh, Not imminent. You know, it took Hamas well over a week to respond to the latest deal that was on the table. Both Qatar and Egypt have had a tough time getting a timely response, in part because it's just hard to communicate with Hamas leaders inside Gaza Mm -hmm. as Israel continues to pursue them. But the Qataris say that Hamas has now agreed to kind of this framework of a deal. They've offered what some are calling a counterproposal, and now we're expecting to see some more negotiations on those details. Okay, what is the framework, so-called? It would be in phases, basically. The first phase would last about 45 days. That would be a period of calm. 
Hamas would release women and children and some elderly hostages that they've been holding since October 7th, and Israel would release some Palestinian prisoners. Now, Hamas wants prisoners who are serving life sentences in Israel out of jail. They also say they've proposed some numbers, though that ratio of hostages to prisoners seems to be one of those issues that's still being negotiated. In other phases of the deal, we might see Israeli troops repositioning and Hamas releasing female soldiers, followed by male soldiers, and the bodies of dead hostages. Israel says that Hamas is holding about 31 bodies. 29 of them were taken during the October 7th attack. Mm. And it believes that there are still about 100 hostages taken that day who are still alive. So negotiation over living hostages, over the bodies of hostages. And aside from that, isn't there a big disagreement about the longer term? Yeah, I mean, Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing to keep fighting Hamas until Hamas is destroyed. And the U.S. is basically just hoping that if there's a pause in fighting that's long enough, it could give everyone more room for diplomacy. And there are a lot of big ideas floating around about that, Steve. Okay, big ideas. Does this include some path forward for a Palestinian state, a two-state solution? Yeah, and a normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Blinken was just in Saudi Arabia, and he says the crown prince is interested in pursuing that, but a couple of things are required first. An end to the conflict in Gaza and a clear, credible, time-bound path to the establishment of a Palestinian state. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu has repeatedly said he doesn't want a two-state solution, but Blinken knows that Israel does want normal ties with the Saudis and needs Arab states to support a post-war Gaza. So he'll be talking about all of that here with Netanyahu. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman in Tel Aviv. Michelle, thanks as always for your insights. Thank you. Okay, in this country, House Republicans are regrouping after a failed vote to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for the crisis at the southern border. With a border security deal on the verge of imploding on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats are moving in completely opposite directions on immigration ahead of a key procedural vote, which is scheduled for today. President Joe Biden slammed Republicans who plan to sink the bipartisan legislation, even though the White House agreed to the measures they wanted. It's time for Republicans in the Congress to show a little courage, to show a little spine, to make it clear to the American people that you work for them, not for anyone else. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales joins us this morning. Claudia, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Uh, Okay, I'm trying to figure this out. Republicans demanded uh, some border security measures. Democrats finally said yes to some of them anyway. And then Republicans said actually no. How did that happen? (laughs) Yes, they spent a lot of months on negotiating this $118 billion bipartisan deal. And yes, Republicans initially said no to foreign aid to Ukraine and Israel without this border deal. McConnell and other Republicans warned that this is probably the best deal they could get, even comparing it to a Republican-controlled Congress and White House. Mm. But now McConnell is singing a different tune with House Republicans starting this momentum for senators, Republican senators, to vote against this plan. So he told reporters all this after applauding all the negotiations on it. But it looks to me and to most of our members as if we have no real chance here to make a law. 
Um, and I guess we should underline why it would seem to be that they would have no real chance to make it law. Why would that be? Because there just was not enough support there because Senate Republicans had turned on the plan, too. Uh, and that would have to do with Donald Trump? Exactly. So that really started pressure, especially for House Speaker Mike Johnson, who really started this momentum for House Republicans to say, we're not even going to take up this plan if it were even to pass in the Senate. Um, Wasn't there also an effort yesterday to just strip out the immigration part, even strip out the Ukraine part, and just pass military aid to Israel in the House of Representatives? Yes. Speaker Mike Johnson was unable to pass this $17.6 billion in military aid to Israel, there was just too much opposition there, even on both sides. And Biden also had threatened to veto the bill. Okay, how does election year politics, the fact that it's 2024 and there are presidential primaries underway, how does that play into this? That plays a huge role. For example, if you were to say fix the border with this legislation, Republicans will lose that argument as a big talking point on the campaign trail. So there's definitely a political calculation here for the GOP, who want to preserve their best shot for presenting the best argument for the election. And especially when you look at the presidential race with Trump as the presumed GOP presidential nominee, he was adamantly opposed to this. Quickly, House Republicans, Speaker Johnson followed suit, and now we're seeing Senate Republicans fall in line as well. So how did the House fail to impeach Secretary Mayorkas, which was supposed to be part of their campaign push? Well, there were three Republicans who joined Democrats to vote against the measure. So too many for this narrow GOP majority. They could still revisit this effort later. But it's another reminder how far apart both these parties remain. Okay, just the facts. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Thanks as always. Thank you. Ethan Crumbly was 15 years old when he committed a mass shooting at Michigan's Oxford High School a few years ago. A judge sent him to prison for life. Yesterday, a jury found his mother shares responsibility. A jury found Jennifer Crumbly guilty of four counts of involuntary manslaughter. She faces many years in prison, and Ethan's father, James Crumbly, still faces involuntary manslaughter charges. And this raises the question, at what point do parents share criminal responsibility for a child's gun crimes? NPR law enforcement correspondent Martin Costi joins us now. Martin, good morning. Morning, Steve. Does this case set a new standard? Well, it's not clear that this suddenly makes gun-owning parents more criminally liable for their children's actions because experts call this an extreme case. Mm -hmm. It's less about how Ethan got the gun, and this is more about how Jennifer Crumbly ignored clear warnings that her son posed a danger and failed to stop him. Still, there are some people who think this may affect some of the more gray area cases in which parents are careless with their guns. I talked about this with Adam Skaggs, who's the vice president at the Giffords Law Center. If a high-profile prosecution of this nature leads some prosecutors to think maybe they should use the tools that they can to uh, deter irresponsible gun ownership, irresponsible gun storage, that may not be a bad thing. Okay, so this case becomes part of the conversation. How does it compare with other prosecutions in somewhat analogous situations? Well, nobody's really keeping track of how many prosecutions like this there are nationally. But in these shootings that have gotten national attention, what we've seen is that the parent usually isn't charged with violating a gun safety law per se. It's typically something else. For instance, that notorious case last year of the six-year-old in Newport News, Virginia, the boy who brought his mother's gun to school and shot his teacher – 
There, his mother ended up pleading guilty to felony child neglect. Okay. So not too many cases that we can judge by here. What about the laws that apply and how they're evolving? Well, that's easier to quantify here because roughly half the states have laws now that require guns to be kept out of reach of children. Some also have laws that require guns to be locked up when kids are present. But these safe storage laws are harder to pass because Second Amendment rights groups say that they can also hamper an adult's ability to keep a gun ready for self-defense. That said, more states are passing laws like that. Michigan passed a version after the Oxford High School shooting, and it takes effect next week. I'm interested in this, Martin, because when people debate gun control legislation, one of the arguments against it is that it doesn't work, that people get guns anyway, that people use guns anyway. Is there any research suggesting that these particular gun safety laws do work? Well, the experts say yes. Um, I talked to April Zioli. She's with the Institute for Firearm Injury Prevention at the University of Michigan. There is a measurable effect in child suicide, child homicide, and child unintentional death. In fact, child access prevention laws are the firearm safety law with the most evidence in reducing child death. But here again, though, Zioli does not know how often parents are actually prosecuted under those gun safety laws. Her guess is it's not that often. She says that's because parents' negligence often goes undetected when no one's shot. And when someone is shot or a child dies, prosecutors may still hesitate to bring a criminal charge against grieving parents. NPR's law enforcement correspondent, Martin Costi. Martin, thanks so much. You're welcome. And we have a bit of political news out of Nevada, where Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, suffered a setback. In the presidential primary, she lost to none of the above. Republican voters held a primary, which was meaningless, no delegates at stake because of the way the state had organized its presidential contest, and Haley was on the ballot with none of the above and lost to none of the above. In a caucus coming in days, former President Trump is expected to grab all the actual delegates. In the Democratic primary, President Biden decisively won, getting one step closer to a formal confirmation of his nomination. You can get more information at NPR.org. And that's up first for this Wednesday, February 7th. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Today's episode of Up First was edited by Jerry Holmes, Kelsey Snell, Catherine Laidlaw, and Mohamed El-Bardisi. It was produced by Ziad Budge, Ben Abrams, and Julie Deppenbrock. We get engineering support from Stacey Abbott, and our technical director is Zach Coleman. And if you like your news on demand, check out the NPR One app. You get a mix of local, national, and international news wherever you go whenever you want it, and you hear podcasts based on what you like. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Want to hear this podcast without sponsor breaks? 
Amazon Prime members can listen to Up First sponsor-free through Amazon Music. Or you can also support NPR's vital journalism and get Up First Plus at plus.npr.org. That's plus.npr.org.